Uh, welcome to the new studio, uh, the New Look Whitechapel Gallery. This is, I hear, the first event that's taken place here. Um, so it's very nice to have all of you here. Congratulations to the Whitechapel on, uh, on a fantastic revamp. The place looks superb. Uh, my name's Mark Smith. I'm one of the two curators, as they call us, or uh, programmers, as, as we prefer to call ourselves, of the Whitechapel Salon. Uh, it's a series of events that I program with my colleague from the University of Westminster, David Cunningham. Um, and for those of you that haven't been to any of the Whitechapel salons before, it's an informal opportunity to discuss informally um, a series of issues that we think are particularly interesting or pertinent to our contemporary culture. And for the purposes of this year, we've decided that the question of hope seemed to be uh, particularly interesting and intriguing. So we actually have four salons over the course of this calendar year, and I'm going to give you some dates just so you've got them for your diary. Uh, we have Richard Sennett coming to speak on Thursday, July the 2nd. We have Chantal Mouth, the political theorist, coming to speak on Thursday the 8th of October. And finally, the philosopher Peter Osborne, who's going to be contributing to the Whitechapel Salon on Thursday, the 14th of January, 2010. So feel free to come along. Feel free um, to get as, as involved in, in the conversation as, uh, as you like. So as I said, the Whitechapel Salon for this year is, is on the topic of hope. And each session features a, a world-leading intellectual, you're going to have to live that down, um, debating the political, ethical and emotional question of hope and the implications that this has for our past, present and future as citizens of the world. And the brief that we've given them is to struggle with articulating in any number of ways the challenge of walking the line between the, the excitement and anticipation generated by the prospect of, for instance, of Barack Obama and how that feeling meets one of Nietzsche's most damning observations on humanness and the human condition, that hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs our torment. So I'm very excited to hear how over the course of the year people tread that very precarious path. A little bit of housekeeping before I get going. There are drinks you know about. Um, fire exit. I don't know how this building works anymore. Tell me where the fire exit is so that in the event of a fire we know how to get out safely. Okay. It's the stairs you need to know about. Just career down the stairs. <laughs> okay. Uh, please turn your mobile phones off if you haven't done already. Thank you very much. Um, the toilets are really close. Okay, they're just outside to the left. Um, and we are actually recording uh, the Whitechapel Salons this year, so uh, please keep that in mind for the conversation to take place after the presentation. There'll be a mic circling the room, and, um, and if you can wait till it gets to you, that would be great. Okay, so to the main event of the evening, uh, which is, of course, uh, the, the company of Professor Gayatri Spivak who's director of the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society at Columbia University. For more than 35 years, Gayatri's research, writings and praxis have had a profound effect on academia and beyond um, and include major interventions 
into Marxist, feminist, deconstructivist, psychoanalytic, and historiographical problematics. She's known for a series of hugely influential essays such as Can the Subaltern Speak? and books such as Of Other Worlds, A Critique of Postcolonial Reason, and The Death of a Discipline. Um, she's also well known, as I'm sure a lot of you know, for her work in, in West Bengal um, around the education of, uh, of young children out there, um, which you may or may not want to talk about. Um, it's absolutely up to her. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Gayatri Spivak. Thank you. I'm not going to stand up. You can hear me, right? Yes. I was thinking if I sat there, probably you would see me better because I can't see the faces of the people in the back and it makes me uncomfortable. I like to see to whom I'm speaking. So how's this? Can you see me better? Yes. Okay. And I can see you better, you see. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Um, no, I am not a citizen of the world. I... Um, I think it's impossible to be a citizen of the world. Citizen, the idea of borderless places, Kant's perpetual peace, and that hope. I don't think, you know, I quickly took out my two Indian passports because the old one still has the British visa, which will go next year. And from what I just heard from John Hutnick, what has been done to the immigration laws in terms of students and so on, I do not think we should talk about citizenship of the world, except those who do not need visas. We live in the hope, but I don't think, and I'm using that word hope uh, extremely uh, uh, seriously, the hope for a borderless world is a very good, solid, wonderful hope. But I think at this point in time, for that to happen, you would need divine intervention. And for an avowed atheist like me, that is like saying, Transcendental deduction, yes? And, the, uh, and it also seems to me, you know, I was giving the talk, you see? The police agree. There is no, there is no way. But um, I was invited to... I should look at the watch, yes. I was invited to speak at the European uh, Cultural Capital for t uh, 2010, Pech, Hungary. For some reason, the European Cultural Capital people always like me. I speak English well, and I'm an ethno-cultural agenda. So, you know, <laughs> I'm very cool. And I was going to this uh, city called Pech. It calls itself the borderless city. And it so happened I'd left my Indian passport, which is still better than an Afghan passport or a Pakistani passport today. But, and I can think of other passports, it's all graded, you know. So I was, it's very far from citizenship of the world. I had left my passport in the, um, on the plane, so I did not have a passport to go to Pech, and which is now, of course, Schengen country, Hungary. You have no idea the trouble that I had to take that day going from pillar to post, including my own embassy in in uh, Copenhagen, I was in Denmark, including my own embassy, uh, to just get the uh, opportunity to go to the European cultural capital, which was subduing Byzantium, because the other one was Istanbul, and uh, so that I could speak at a borderless city. You know, it was just pathetic. So to that extent, I think that hope, which is a very strong collective hope, that the world should belong to us not only by, in terms of uh, engines of world governance, but in the, because those exist, engines of world governance are in place and have been for a long time. 
but that hope is not yet, uh, not yet uh, fulfilled. And I will speak about the relationship between hope and expectation in a moment. Um, if you ask me now, I'm not going to speak much about um, India. And I find that, I mean, I, you talked about Barack Obama, and I have lived in the United States for 48 years, so I feel this, he is a Columbia graduate, I teach at Columbia, he's like one of our smart graduate students, so to an extent, smartest graduate students, if you like. I'm going to talk more about him. But and also, uh, this is something that, um, uh, Joanna, I told you what the Canadian woman said to me in 1991. It's a secret between us. But at any rate, I find it difficult to speak as an Indian in Britain because I am not a minority on this little island. I'm part of a violent majority in what CNN calls the world's largest democracy. So, you know, it's hard for me to wear those shoes. So that one, I'm not going to talk about that much, all right? But if you want to know what, as an Indian, quote unquote, I hope for, I certainly hope for the, uh, an electorate. This is also a hope that Marx expresses in the 18 Brumaire, that the largest sector of the electorate which is the poorest of the poor, way below the NGO radar, that their votes not be bought and sold so that my country can deserve the name. It is still, in fact, okay in terms of a freeish press and so on and so forth, when after, indeed, I, perhaps I spoke of this in Canada that time, when uh, from Morocco to Indonesia, all of the countries objected to the fact of George Bush wanting the first one, wanting to uh, refuel the aircraft, the only place where the government fell was India. I'm not a nationalist, but I felt that perhaps there was something going on there which was not bad. But nonetheless, if that's my hope. That's my hope. But again, as I say, the, uh, I will speak about the difference between hope and expectation. Expectation is something that can be tested, but hope cannot. But we will, we will come to that. Let me come to, um, to um, Mark's wonderful question. The challenge of walking the line between the excitement generated by the prospect of Sir Barack Obama and how that feeling meets one of Nietzsche's most damning observations on humanness and the human condition that hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs our torment. Well, I began my answer like a good girl. I wrote it out. America is the land of hope, capital H. This is related to the general problem of empiricization that I always bring up in terms of what is happening, in terms of what is supposed to be the most virtual of virtuals, the electronic media. It is empiricizing everything, saying this can happen, and also undermining the virtuality of, um, of our psychic space. So the, that is something that connects to the visuality, the visibility of Obama. America was, to begin with, another space, the theater of a new and ethical state supposedly realized in the Declaration of Independence. 
By contrast, Kant, who certainly is tied ideologically to the rise of capitalism, said, in religion within the boundaries of mere reason, that a real ethical state was an impossibility. But in popular imagination, America had empiricized that, a real place where, and if you look at the, the, the way in which America is a land of new immigrants forever becoming older, this idea, capital H hope, is still there to find justice under capitalism. The, in, in Derrida, we learn that the ethical is in the arena of alterity somewhere else and appears to us only as accountability. In this country and the US, a description of this as a relationship without relationship would be dismissed by both rational choice capitalists and Little Britain Marxists. It's too postmodern, this statement. And yet, it simply takes to its graphical consequence bits of popular wisdom, such as hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Bourgeoisified by Romain Roland to pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, which Gramsci made his own. Okay, so in fact, this statement, the statement that the relationship without relationship is between the ethical and accountability, and this then will fall into, I'll describe the relationship between hope and expectation. When Obama launched his other popular slogan, yes we can, which is now included among the signs of his visibility all over the place, he was in fact expressing optimism of the will, not the other one. He's much too smart to have been expressing optimism of the intellect. He was expressing optimism of the will. In a popularized stereotype of democratic choice, he expressed as much pessimism of the intellect as he could, which was invariably diagnosed as negativism by McCain and others. In fact, even mad Nietzsche can be seen as party to this double bind willingly undertaken. The two popular quotes are, one, about the strength of hope. There is another popular quote, and I, which is about uh, everything, all the strong things that mortals have done have been done through hope, and the other about its torments. The word evil carries an unusual connotation in Nietzsche's private dictionary. We should not understand it as we would understand it colloquially, nor as in Nietzsche, it is only the very few who can deserve contempt and also who can deserve torment. Yeah? So the word evil carries an unusual connotation in Nietzsche's private dictionary because of his contempt for the merely good, although it is true that for him, hope is also tied to Christianity, which for him is merely good. In other words, what I am suggesting is that we learn to inhabit the double bind between hope and the right to doubt that the European Enlightenment bequeathed to the world, the best of the European Enlightenment, the right to doubt. This is not to say that that idea has not been present in countless traditions. But first of all, I'm a Europeanist. This is what I know. 
I could shoot off, as I sometimes do, but you're not an audience to fool. At this point, I sometimes shoot off some Sanskrit tags. And people immediately think, ah, well, she's speaking for her culture, so she's okay. Gaichi Spivak is not too American. When, in fact, to produce these kinds of tags on order, that is more American than you can imagine. Uh, my, my friend, Ranujit Guha, whom I very much admire, a very, very brilliant historian indeed, has uh, just written, you know, he's, uh, he's ill, in, he's in his last days. He has just written a book in Bengali, which is cool. And in it, he has written, this book does not rely on anything English, but only on the Bengali tradition. And he moves right off into Sanskrit, which is, uh, the, you know, the Bengali speakers were hanging from trees when this Sanskrit stuff was written. So only on the Bengali tradition, first of all. And second of all, it's about shifters, which is like, a, come on, I mean, what English tradition? The real, and that marks him as a metropolitan migrant. Because, after all, he doesn't have to think about the Chinese tradition, the Arabic tradition, the Japanese tradition, the traditions of the great oralities of Africa. Why? Because for him, there exists only the English tradition. And him, because it, the English conquered him. That position of producing your ethnicity on, de on demand, preferably in translation, into the imperial language, is a mark of, in fact, not being completely uh, from the place. I'm not from the place. No one is from the place. I move around. The, and after all, I deal with people who are supposedly from the place. That's another discussion not uh, essential to Barack Obama. Indeed, Barack Obama, in terms of his African cousins, one could do a riff on this one, but not for the moment. Not for the moment. What I'm suggesting then is that we learn to inhabit the double bind between hope and the right to doubt that the European Enlightenment bequeathed to the world. This is not to say that that idea has not been present in countless traditions, but ever since I launched the concept of enabling violation, the children of rape, but children, enabling violation about 20, 25 years ago, it did not have too many takers compared to the convenience of strategic essentialism or epistemic violence. This one was difficult because it didn't allow you the, uh, the, the ability to simply congratulate yourselves because of your accident of birth. The, um, when I, I, I talked about the, uh, the uh, idea of enabling violation, I have believed since then that we must acknowledge history as providing the European Enlightenment as the major episteme today. And then, of course, I have toiled for the last decades to think of a way of what I call abusing the Enlightenment from below, what to do, how to refashion ourselves, because we do want the private benefits and the, and the social organization of the Enlightenment. And yet, dot, 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 we cannot forget that the Enlightenment came to colonizer and colonized alike through colonialism with a promise of a false free trade. So that's a project. But the, in terms of that, we, all, we have to acknowledge the history of, uh, that provides the European Enlightenment as the major episteme today. As witness, the inevitably bilateral attempts to provincialize Europe or the United States, as I was saying about Ranujit at the other pole being, generally speaking, one's own background. 
that we inevitably undertake. In spite of all its heterogeneity, the Euro-US also carries the uniformity of capital most successfully. And today, especially in globalization, it is that uniformity that is the hope of a certain class in the rest of the world. I'm talking hope. In such a context, the gift of doubt is as radical as it was in its own day, two and a half centuries ago. For us, the antonym of hope in this description is not despair, but doubt. Thus, doubt also doubts the humanism that establishes itself early in the name of belief. Elsewhere, I have written as follows about belief, trying to think of a, of a space filled by what is neither reason nor unreason, yet seems irreducible. Okay, this is taking a step back from what is easily recognizable as so-called materialist talk, or how I have been harmed. I have written as follows. This space, this space which is neither reason nor unreason, yet seems irreducible, is of course the space literally of dreams. That most literal text that helps experiencing beings fill up the gaps in presupposing a world. Can one even think of this space as that between what experiencing beings can make and what they need? This space where what is produced is neither reasonable nor unreasonable, but irreducible, not only just dreams, but also, I'm hesitating with that word because the word is so, so European and so modern and has such a history. Literature and art, forget those words immediately, although we are sitting in an art gallery because that confines them. I'm talking about people in general, okay? So, trying to think of a space filled by what is neither reason nor unreason, yet seems irreducible, the space literally of dreams, that most literal of texts that help experiencing beings fill up the gaps in presupposing a world, I asked, can one think of this space as that between what experiencing, experiencing beings can make and what they need? I'm not saying human beings because we haven't yet come to that distinction. Experiencing beings, dreaming. So the irreducible, I'm talking about doubt, the gift of doubt, as in I follow the line of reasoning here because I'm a little turgid and this is not revised, okay? So I'm talking about the gift of doubt, which is my antonym of hope rather than despair. And then I'm taking doubt to another one of its antonyms, belief. Belief, and so I'm talking about belief now. And I'm talking about belief in the context of that strange space between needing and making, which is reasonable, not reasonable, not unreasonable, but something. The irreducible filling up of this space has been a site of struggle that we call history and culture simply because there seems to be change constituted here and grounded in the shape of a struggle. There is, in my view, and this is extremely important in terms of what one hopes for from capitalism, and before I 
end, I will read a bit from uh, bits that I wrote earlier about Obama and socialism, okay? All right, so uh, in my view, there is no subsistence hunting, no subsistence gathering, no subsistence farming, no subsistence economy, because this difference is operative before capitalism secures it as the place of the generating of capital. That's what it is, right? The worker makes more than he or she needs. The capitalist steals that little bit. Profit is generated, okay? So, and that is taken as the adequate description of what you do with the difference between making and needing. But it didn't begin with capitalism. Even Marx sometimes thought so. Certainly, his anthropological authorities, Morgan and company, certainly thought so. But I'm suggesting something a little bit different. The place, the place of hope, there we go. Today, I'm asking you to think this shape as not only ever different, but also ever repeatable. Thus, it is not only history, but also singularity in the strictest sense given by us by post-Spinozan thought. Here, the human differentiates itself from the animal by proposing belief. Yes. That wasn't a question? Okay. By, uh, here, the human differentiates itself from the animal by proposing belief, so that what is imagined is turned into what is believed. Both Freud and Gregory Bateson, who thought about double bind, they both said that in the play element, it is, Freud's words are specter and throne in the essay of fetishism, and um, uh, Gregory Bateson, in his wonderful essay on play, he's talking about a metaphor that becomes meaning, religion and nationalism, nation. So that is where you propose, that's another reason why I would rather not speak as an Indian. I suffer as an Indian, that's enough. But, but the thing is, but so the thing is that this, this area, then the human being distinguishes itself from the animal in this space between making and needing by transcendentalizing the imaginary. So this is uh, something that we have to keep in mind as we are thinking of where is hope lodged. This is religion. I would like to believe from what little I know of the world, I assume that the economy of belief and wonder, for want of a better word, on the other side of doubt, is a characteristic of the definitive predication of a chunk of the experiencing being. It can and has become a tug of war, a battle, battles, wars. The economy itself is the mark of what we today can call literature and hope to be understood, whatever that might mean. This economy marks the arrogance of the French 18th century, where all democratic hopes are lodged. If you go to any UN things, you'll see that it's still Rousseau, Condorcet, Montesquieu, etc. Even greater than the German Orientalism of the same period. And if it is called Afrocentrism, or Indocentrism, or Sinocentrism, it is recognizable by those who do their homework. So to an extent, as uh, to quote Marx, coming in by the back door. So uh, Mark, when you wrote a, the, the question about hope and visibility, you repeatedly mentioned Obama as he was during the campaign and at the inauguration. We now speak after the 100 days. What I think we are witnessing is a very intelligent man in a political leadership position 
unable really to deal with the military situation well. It is impossible for him to deal with this thing that he was bequeathed. He's not doing well. And I think it is also a lesson to us. We who talk about saving the world, once put in certain kinds of positions, we do not know quite. We look at, for our companions in the classroom. So I think to an extent we should keep that in mind. What I think we are witnessing is a very intelligent man in a political leadership position not modifying his convictions, the ground of hope, but constantly making compromises because A, the country was shattered when he came in, and B, the ideological base of the country sees in job creation, the solution of Roosevelt's New Deal after all, a panacea to the country's troubles. Whereas Obama is clearly convinced that the country's mindset has to be changed. He is a Gramscian, Gramsci quietly writing that in what in Marx, I mean, of course, he adored Marx, he adored Lenin, but when he writes in, to himself in his notebooks, saying, uh, write the, those great comments and contribution to a critique of political economy, that Marx's project is not just moral and psychological, but epistemological. You have to instrumentalize the intellectual in order to produce the subaltern intellectual. That, to an extent, relates to the hope that I spoke of, the hope as an Indian that relates to the work that you were mentioning that's going on for now for 23 years. So that's uh, something that we have to remember. And Obama, in fact, is also there. Uh, that is indeed a spectacle of hope flickering in the wind of despair. I myself think he's a closet socialist. Right at the beginning, he had said things like the labor, I quote, the labor movement is not a problem, it is a solution. Of course, that can't last in the United States. When he says, of course the United States must remain capitalist, as he does over and over again, he protests too much because people expect him to be on the left of Robert Reich. I think it is a way of saying capital production is good, unbridled capitalism is bad, what Reich calls super capitalism. He's just most recently said Wall Street is not going to go away, but it's not going to be 50% of our economy. I mean, imagine the difficulty of trying to manage not just hope and, and, uh, and uh, Nietzsche and Obama, but having to manage to say this in a country like the United States, with a kind of culturally almost dead because of the complete withdrawal from any cultural training in the, of the imagination. To, be, to have to say this and to very, very highly anti-intellectual, so he has to hold himself. I can see because to an extent in the general world, not here, we all have to behave as if we can't think. So I can see how he tries to manage, this smart man tries to manage so that he can be their leader as it were. When he says, of course, the United States must remain capitalist, I think it is a way of saying capital production is good, unbridled capitalism is bad. I would like to think this because such a sentiment, Marx's own, will travel and does travel even to the extremely poor areas of India where I train teachers. Anyone understands Bengali here? Okay, well, at least one person. That is very sad because London is full of Bangladeshis, but they don't come to a place like this. Uh, so, and on the other hand, that site, Brick Lane is right around the corner. And Alfredo Jar did this mockery of a site-specific show. You must mend this. Oh, well, it's not you. You, you, you must mend this. 
I mean, it is very much my mother tongue. The fact that I speak English pretty plausibly doesn't mean I've forgotten Bengali. I read, write, and publish in it. So the idea, this idea that travels, I'll give you if there's one person who almost understands, the, the way in which it travels is, because after all, it is a communist state, right? Punji bhalo, punji bad kharap. This is the sentence that can go into the places where people don't know anything at all. No institutional education, cognitive dissonance produced by my kind over centuries, right? So uh, it uh, ultimately, I would like to think this because such a sentiment travels. This is a very different kind of hope from the visibilized logo of yes we can that we see concurrently with the ceaseless commodification of a green life. Ultimately, the questions come down to what is it to hope? What is it to hope? An active, uh, active question, you know, to hope, the verb, rather than what is hope. What is it to hope? This one frames hope historically and geographically. Who hopes? This question is not just historical and geographic, it's also gendered and racialized. Who hopes? And of course, classed in terms of the access to class of race and gender, the access to class mobility, the access to class consciousness. It the, the question, what is it to hope, entails imagining. And I'm quoting by changing uh, a little the end of Derrida's last um, uh, published book. The rest is posthumous now, lots coming out, Rogues. It entails imagining so as to save the honor of this challenge, the challenge you began with, the very essence of the political. It entails learning how to translate. For example, the word hope in the languages of the world and how to pay one's respects to the fragile difference between to hope and to expect something like that in the languages of the world. Otherwise, there is no discussion. And this is not ethnicization. Even French and English. In French, for example, the relationship between attendre and espérer is not the same as that between hope and expectation in English. The one in English can be opened up into that relationship without relation that I'm talking about, yet which would be dismissed by uh, Terry Eagleton or uh, the rational choice folks in the United States. Yet today, both are empiricized, both hope and expectation, and that is where our troubles begin. In other words, once again, I am trying to re-territorialize the question of hope into a double bind between what we can, in shorthand, call intellect and will, as well as by stretching it and displacing it into ethics and accountability. Now, before I read the exact conclusion, and I'm coming to the half, uh, the half an hour mark, I would just like to say that in terms of, I have talked about Obama because I believe that democracy, an impossible idea if not inscribed in the to come, as it is by Derrida, is constantly refigured as the place of the modern prince. And some of you will know that uh, I'm quoting Gramsci. Gramsci thought of the party as the modern prince, and Gramsci's relationship to the party was complicated, especially in the prison notebooks. 
So the, we have to think of a prince uh, when we think of the, the, not the sovereign, but a prince as the figure in which hope can be launched. Let us remember that this is exactly how Marx had mocked the French Revolution, the bourgeois revolution, the nephew, capital N, not the uncle. I mean, it's the 18 Brumaire. It's not the French Revolution itself, but it's, it's, in, it's inheritor, right? The, the, uh, trying to play the 18 Brumaire. The nephew, capital N, not the uncle, Louis Napoleon, seen as the democratic representative, hopefully repre representing those who cannot represent themselves. Incredible, with incredible irony, Marx wrote this because democracy is so um, impossible an idea that, in fact, it has to manufacture not the sovereign, that much is granted, but a prince, a modern prince, who can then be the place of hope. And it certainly helps if they are beautiful, if they have charismatic wives. But I want also to say that uh, and the whole question of racialization, I have not brought up here because we are not talking about the visit, it's all here, but in half an hour I thought I would focus on hope. The visibilization of Obama, which I hope in fact I will give to visual culture, I hope you will look at that, uh, that piece. There, I will certainly talk about the ambivalence of racialization, the ambi ambivalence of gendering. But I have suggested here, in this one, that we shouldn't think that he is only supremely visible. Of course he is. But it is also true that this kind of visibilization is old. Today, what we also have is unbelievably personalized ways of accessing a great number of people. I won't go there because that's not what we're talking about. So let's just mark it that if he's the hopeful person, it's that Prince thing, Camelot for Kennedy, and even for Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, there was a certain kind of aura which we can talk about, upper class folks. Anyway, to come down then to my end. Um, the, I'm trying to re-territorialize the question of hope into a double bind between what we can in shorthand call intellect and will, as well as by stretching it and displacing it, ethics and accountability. A double bind does not offer an in-between. I have never been a person who has thought of an in-between space as anything that one can give to people outside of the academy or those who can museumize their origins, curricularize their origins, whatever their origins are, so that answer the call of culture from time to time, no. A double bind does not offer an in-between, only a difficult terrain of unsure decisions. Is this a solution? Mark had asked an answer to a challenge. Is this an answer, a responsible response? Are the two the same? You figure it out. Thank you. You have time, you have the opportunity to ask questions, to raise issues, to throw comments out. Um, we do our best to create an environment that's as conducive to, to dialogue um, as possible, so feel very free to contribute in, um, in any way that you see fit, you know, civilized and 
responsible manner. Well, I'm a Calcutta girl, you know. I'm Calcutta's streetwise girl, so let's see what you can produce. But give me some water, will you? And there's more where that came from. See, you can't whisper with microphones. It's very strange. You have to be so aware of what you say. I mean, I, I had a quick question. If, um, if people would like to take a minute or two to gather their thoughts. Um, I mean, I have hundreds of bloody questions. Um, but I mean, the, the one I thought that, that might be useful as a place to start um, was to quote you back to yourself, which I know people hate. Um, but you, you say somewhere that um, you always felt that one should speak personally. And I mean, one of the things I, I really like about your, your writing is, is your use of the anecdotal and, and the autobiographical and, and the aphoristic. And I was hoping maybe you could just say a little bit something about what it means to, uh, to speak personally. When did I say that? <laughs> I mean, roughly, like... Um, 1990. About that? Because, you see, one of my problems is... I publish too soon, and so I'm constantly making mistakes. So, and I admit to the mistakes, but I don't expect people to read my deathless prose constantly. So quite often, the mistake remains. I mean, this is my problem. No, on the other hand, speaking personally is not so bad, but I got the idea of speaking personally from a source to which I owe a great debt but I have, uh, I believe, cashed in my chips with them, which is US feminism. I owe a great deal to them. I, and I, it would be bad faith for me to say that uh, the, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I haven't gained by my early association with them. And it is not a joke to say that some of my very good friends are indeed still people like Tema Kaplan, Susan Gubar, and Jane Marcus, and many others are still, I'm still solidary with them. But the idea of the personal is not something that I feel very strongly anymore, because of course one always speaks as the stereotype of a person that one thinks one is. It is for others to read what one says, and from that point of view, and I think uh, you say 1990, you were probably just uh, giving me an answer, but that's fine, it's plausible, you see, uh, because... It, it, appears, it appears in an edited collection of interviews that was published in 1990, but the interview itself... That's a post-colonial critic, oh my, no, forget between it. Between 84 and 88, <laughs> forget it. Okay. I'll tell you why, Ignore. okay? Now I'm speaking personally, okay? The, I'll tell you why. First of all, it was put together because... Uh, the Academy, being what it is, was very hard on the editor. Uh, in she's an uh, extremely brilliant uh, person at that time, uh, young, as indeed I was also quite young. The, um, at that time, they were very hard on her because she, quote, didn't have a book, unquote. Okay? So therefore, I said, well, go with these. I've translated Derrida, and so I have a kind of... Uh, you know, a parasitical um, uh, reputation right now. So this is cool. So th that's why the book came into existence. And now the second one is truly embarrassing as being recorded. But hey, I gave up on the 6th of March, 1989, so I'm cool. 
I drank quite heavily during those days. Most of those interviews were taken right after talks when one really hits the bottle. And so I'm like, you know, way off into the blue. The best one, you know, Thesis 11 with uh, Elizabeth Gross, fantastic questions. I was drinking whiskey from a bottle on the floor of the airport. You see, but so therefore, you know, I read those and I cringe. I had never read them actually because that's what the book was and I was in India emoting on a sort of wave of ethnicity marrying my third husband. So, because he was my first Bengali husband, right? And my last. So, and I mean, he's gone out of my life. He's a very sweet, nice guy. One shouldn't say anything about, about him. So obviously, I read, see how personal I can be. I can't. <laughs> I, but I, I therefore didn't look at the book at all because, you know, 1987, I'm... So then I, I was in Oxford and in someone's office, Queen's College, and I saw the book and I said, gee whiz, people read this book. And so I opened it up. So therefore I say to you, Sales will either rise or fall as a result of these remarks, so I haven't harmed myself. I say to you that it's, uh, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. I mean, in vino veritas, who knows? Maybe I like being personal. I was, wasn't I? But the idea of being personal to me is theoretically a little doubtful because one always speaks as the stereotype of the person one thinks one is. And it was in 87 that these interviews came out. And in 86, after the miasma of 21 years of marriage with men who were unable to cope with the idea of a woman who had some kind of intellectual power, I emerged and I started the schools. It's, the connection is not something I'm making up. It's absolutely clear that it was then that I asked myself, what am I here for to an extent? No, not quite that, but that's too long a story. But uh, so, the, I, and once I started the schools, I began to realize how wrong I was about the idea of any value to the personhood, more or less shaped by German Orientalism, that was my idea of myself. So therefore, I began to realize the distance between this well-intentioned socialist middle-class person and the people who's, who, who had forgotten to understand because they had been uh, discouraged from undertaking any intellectual labor, punished for undertaking intellectual labor, kept for manual labor for at least at least 5,000 years. The colonial experience is recent, but the description of the Shudra is much, much older. It's, it's the, if you think of my kind of Indian as colonizing, that's where that is, lost, that, that is lodged. So at that point, the business of speaking personally began to seem a, really a somewhat trivial period. Then there is another thing about uh, personal. I do give what looks like autobiographical detail often, but it will amuse you to know that I've been unable to write my memoirs. I have a contract with uh, Tariq Ali, uh, because my dear friend Edward Said said to him, he was a good, close enough friend to know the real details of my life, 
And he had said to Tariq, if you want uh, someone to write a memoir, it should be Gayatri Spivak. So, but I'm, I'm unable to write a memoir because those autobiographical details generally relate to a representative stereotype. They are there to make points not about me, but about arguments. I bequeath to myself the so-called aporia, excuse the expression, I know what it means, but I'm not going to explain to those who are going to accuse me right now of something or the other because I want to go on to John Hotnick's question. The aporia of exemplarity I give to myself. I'll explain by way of a little story, and then I'll shut up. The, uh, during my PhD defense, you may have heard this story, I had both, 1967, uh, I had both Paul DeMann and Mike Abrams on my committee, and of course they, you know, didn't think, didn't see eye to eye. And so they got into this terrible debate about is there anything real, et cetera. And I, by then, had already taught for two years, so I knew that if I remained quiet, if everything was cool, I'd, my defense would be over. So I quietly listened. So at some point, Mike says, but Paul, you can't say that they're there, that window is not half open. That's a half open window, Paul. Of course there's the real. And Paul, joking, but talking about this exemplarity business, says, Mike, that is not a window. That is an example. So in that way, one makes of oneself something unreal when one uses the autobiographical in this way. And finally, I will say that if I were a sociologist, I would call those accounts, those anecdotes, case studies and be accepted by my colleagues rather than rejected as an irresponsible theorist. Sorry for such a long answer, but I amused you, didn't I? Right. I amused you. Okay. We, have, we have a question at the front from somebody who I think was there in 1986 during one of these interviews who may or may not have been drinking himself. <laughs> um, you don't have to relay any of that, young man. I, 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 I could tell a story about that. Um, um, and there was alcohol involved. My questions, my questions um, well, it's, it's because I'm not sure. I'm kind of doubtful. I want to ask you a question about doubt. And ask you to say a bit about more death. about doubt. Doubt. Okay. Doubt. And about this phrase, if you could say a bit more about the gift of doubt. And I'm thinking that a gift, you know, we know, is, is, is a troubling thing, yes. a double thing. And doubt is troubling. So I think immediately of, of Descartes doubting and then doubting his doubt. Right? There's, there's a malevolent spirit or something tricking yes. him and telling him... Right, da, da, da. Mm. Then I thought, right, so, so how can we test this doubt? And is that the, the moment of taking a distance of reflexivity that, that makes us different? And I thought, as you were speaking, of Marx's distinction between bees and architects. You know, the bee just mm, yes, produces, and, and the architect produces in, in, in the head before producing, right? But now I think architects, and we are in this building, but I look out on the other buildings and so on, are somehow becoming more like bees. Mm. Not taking distance, not thinking reflexivity. Reflexively, not not so. So, I wonder if this gift of, of doubt, how can we test it, or am I asking to look a gift horse in the mouth? Mouth. Well, you know, this is an extremely difficult question, but a question that comes up all the time, all the time in the texture of the doubt. Let me start with Marx's uh, B and architect. Marx, like most of his uh, contemporaries, 
is speaking of education in spite of all of his uh, wishes for the working class. The, what he knows, you see, this is what I said uh, when I said that when, once I started these schools, I realized how much I still had to learn. You know, and this is not because of experience. That is also a textuality. It's not experience as opposed to just reading. It ain't like that. How did Gramsci know? He was in jail, but he knew a lot of things. So uh, the, in a sense, Marx's idea of the architect planning is because those things had not really become completely professionalized through mass education. He had no idea about architecture being a disciplinary production which constructs the mind to produce its object in a certain way which is then connected to something that has really rather little to do with whatever a pure, the goal of a pure architecture would be. So Marx was making a very typical, I mean, that's not his example. It, in fact, comes from Morgan, as you know. He was making a very, he was giving a very typical example of a, a humanist example because we also know, don't know, in terms of genetic scripting and so on and so forth. I mean, these are questions for ordinary language philosophers as to what the bee does. So this distinction between being programmed for the, for the bee and having, the, having an intention for the architect ignores both the metapsychological psychic apparatus on this side and the notion of genetic inscriptions in the high primates on the other side. So uh, therefore, the, um, uh, therefore, forgetting that one, I think we can say that, not, not because that discussion is a, you know, I mean, it's not a good example. But I know what, I don't mean your example, I mean Marx's example is not a good one. But uh, the, that's why Marx's entire idea that socialism will come to be if there is consent. You know, socialism will come to be if there is consent and the worker willingly owning the means of production will actually uh, use uh, capital generated by his or her uh, labor and then make the tax, uh, draw the taxes and revenues so that the welfare state will be. That is also based on an idea of human intention which is unexamined. So to an extent, we'll keep that aside. We will talk about the other one as to how do you, how do you test doubt. You don't test doubt. You always want to test doubt. This is why I said right at the end that in that double bind, hope and doubt, it is a place of unsure decisions, not undecidable decisions, but you are never sure. The idea of putting tests, ascertainable tests, if you quantify, you cannot improve, as I read somewhere. The, that, if you do not quantify, you cannot improve. Sorry, Freudian error. That I read somewhere, in fact, in Britain. If you cannot quantify, you cannot improve. Also, the, uh, no, it, I read it in Britain, but it was not about Britain. It was about George Bush, no child left behind. Yeah, so you have to quantify in order to improve, in order to test. You cannot test this kind of robust doubt in this way, but you must want to test. You must be ready to be accountable. This is the, this is the kind of leap into the, into the blue. I myself feel that in unexpected ways, positive results come.
negative results also come, but in unexpected ways, positive results come. And I do believe that statecraft is much more like that than like rational choice stuff that is written in the daily newspaper. But, you know, I'm not sitting doing statecraft, but I would think that there must be rules like citizenship, but there must be abstract structures. But the place where hope and doubt play in this way, that is not a place where you can actually apply quantified testing. You must want to test knowing that the testing is always in the hands of, you know, the, the idea of thought being the, being the uh, a textual blank which someone else is going to, to inhabit. It's, a, it's always, it, it, it presupposes a theory of change rather than me testing it, me accountable, thinking, unable to imagine the testers pushing toward the future. That's also Nietzschean, the philosopher, I write for the philosophers of the future. I think that's the best I can offer you. And this comes really not from my Columbia classroom, but from the work in the villages, because of course that is done so easily by NGOs, as if the fact that when it's your own children, you go around all over testing, testing different places to decide which would be best. But for these children, poor people's children, other people's children, just build buildings and take photos of people holding books in their hands. It doesn't matter that the system of education is deplorable, it doesn't matter. So this, I've learned from engaging in such a way, me super educated, that I will not be able to test anything here. There's no, no hope of testing, undoing centuries of, centuries of oppression, epistemic oppression, you cannot test like that. So therefore, I will say out of that ground that you must always want to test, be aware that you cannot test in the satisfying way and be prepared to be tested unknowingly and unexpectedly by people unlike yourself from the future. That's the best I can do. Raise your hand, whoever you are, because I can't see so clearly at the back. Is there anyone? I'll, I'll throw another question out there. Um, which, which had to do with utopian thinking. Yes. And, um, and I'm just wondering now, listening to you talk about doubt and, and the difficulty of testing doubt, but the, the obvious importance of, of doing doubt, wh whether this is part mm -hmm. of a, a certain kind of utopian thinking, a strong utopian thinking. Well, in a certain sense, Mark, yes, it is a utopian thinking. But some people would say that it's exactly the opposite of utopian thinking. Because when it looks, you know, Martha Nussbaum, whom I respect greatly, had uh, said at a certain point that she believed what she was trying to do was to produce the best theory for some sort of a situation. And I, I would say that that really marks the difference between her and me. Because in my book, when a theory seems absolutely foolproof, that's the moment to ask what could possibly be the problem with it. So you see, that is also a kind of strong doubt, you know. And thinking about the, I mean, I say this to my students all the time, especially because I'm in a terrible discipline, literary criticism, where 
one takes one example of a text and immediately by just simply this imaginative text by analyzing and describing it as if it were an example of all kinds of theories begins to opine about the world in general. That I, and I say to them, you know, ask yourself how. Doubt this, doubt this. Ask yourself how uh, you might not be right. And, and be strong with it. You know, this whole American business of not being able to bear, I mean, and the whole world is Ameri getting more and more Americanized in this sense. Now you see this pursuit of happiness rather than, as I said, you know, when I ate those two boxes of candies, the, uh, as I closed the thing, uh, when I said, you should ask what's wrong with the pursuit of happiness, and we foreigners from older cultures, why have we said all over the world that tragedy is the best genre for men and women alike? Think about it, and I had to leave because it was 10 o'clock and I was closing the thing, so, you know, there was no way I could take time. If, you, if you're not the person running the thing, you can take time. But if you're the person running that, you have to close it. So this particular thing, the thing of being strong with it, being strong with uh, asking this question, rather than saying, uh, no, no, have you hugged your kid today, and positive reinforcement, and uh, non-hierarchical, deliberate non-hierarchical behavior, and all that nonsense. It's, that's where, I, some might say that this is, exactly not utopian. But I think in the strong utopia, there is room for doubt. And in fact, although there is nobody here who understands Bengali properly, I will say that the, in the, in, this is not Bengali, but on the other hand, uh, Durga is very, very much more Bengali than, uh, as a goddess than uh, the rest of the rest of India, and remember, I am not a believer at all. But what is quite interesting in the in the epithets that she's given, one of them is, you know, the huge, wonderful poem that celebrates her when she comes in to fight. And fight, obviously, it's the Hindus fighting the tribals. The guy is black and a buffalo that he that she kills. Uh, what is triumph for us is celebrated as mourning by the tribals. I mean, I know having lived with them. But uh, at any rate, at the beginning, but, the, but there's wonderful poetry. I mean, aesthetics and politics are related in curious ways. So uh, where these extraordinary epithets are, are chanted, right? So we don't have prayer, really. It's praise. So the, uh, and it goes, uh, I won't give it in the Bengali accent, which is what uh, I always heard. It goes, Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu, something rupena samstita, namastasyai. That is to say, the, the goddess who in all created things is stabilized as this uh, praise to her. And one of them is Branti rupena samstita, error. The, the goddess who in all created things is stabilized as error to her praise. See, this is the moment of the, the creative doubt, the wonderful line. You know, there's otherwise, it's learning, it's beauty, it's praise, uh, it's reputation, it's everything. But then there's that line, which is really a very powerful line. So uh, the, that's where I would say you can take it as a strong utopia, certainly. The, the, the Song of Praise thinks of it as a strong utopia, but most people 
especially Americanized contemporary people would think of this as a snake in the garden, and I'm constantly criticized for taking people's voice away and being too negative and so on and so forth. But at least I hope my students know that one can learn to be strong with it, and that's what, what it is. Come on, someone, someone asked me a question, not just old friends. How will I feel? As people are moving away, nobody asks me a question, ask me anything. Hi, you didn't want to say that you were um, Indian from the UK or wouldn't see yourself as an Indian in the UK. Could you just explain a bit why you don't want to be seen as an Indian in the UK? And also, do you, I don't know if you've come often to the UK, but do you feel that there is a kind of like um, a, a fault line between Indians, uh, people of Indian origin and non-resident Indians when they come to the UK? Because somebody who, who is around the Asian community, you tend to see... a a difference, those who were colonialized and the, who came in the 50s and 60s and those who now come as uh, um, IT workers or, or uh, super intelligent academics? Yes, there is. And you know, the problem with Indians is not just that there is that difference. You know, the, the pro problem with Indians is also older than that. If you go to South Africa, for example, the distinction that is held to tooth and nail between the passenger Indians and the, uh, and the uh, indentured labor. And then later, like you say, the people who came after the independence of the various countries as professionals who were invited by the government and so on and so forth. No, this is absolutely true. Uh, the reason why I don't um, uh, feel this is it's just, again, as I say, you know, I can't really be personal here. I think you are being critical from the outside, and I believe I should listen to that so that when I think of myself as a stereotype, I pay attention to whether I'm doing what you are talking about. That is to say, I'm from the mainland, and therefore I distinguish myself from those who migrated. But let me put that aside, thank you for that intervention, and then say that the other part, which again I might be wrong about, it doesn't help me because I find that I have more responsibility as a human being in being part of an often violent majority in my country. You see, I'm an upper caste Hindu. We are not very good right now. You know, the Hindu fundamentalism is a very frightening thing. And I feel that in some ways I cannot, it's not that I do not, I cannot define myself as receiving uh, discrimination. I do receive it. In fact, I have been hit in this city three times by white folks. Really, once, remember that ICA thing where I was, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, concussed and I was in hospital and then I came, uh, I woke up, I came to ICA, I came in and I was shaking in every limb and I didn't have my talk. I picked up my... Uh, briefcase, I opened it, my briefcase was empty. And like that, once in near Tower Hamlets, once near Ifley Locks, and the Guardian didn't think that it was an appropriate article that, you know, a senior academic who lives in the United States, because I seem, you know, always hit when I was running, because it doesn't seem right that someone, an Asian woman, should be in the class where she's running in public, especially aged. What is this? You know, so working class, uh, white folks, 
three times. And so, but that was not, so if I wanted to, I could. But with the two women, in fact, I was crying tears of rage. Luckily, uh, rain was falling. Because I knew that I couldn't say anything against them, because, to them even, of course, they had a dog that they were putting on me, so I couldn't say anything anyway, because the dog wouldn't know. But I, if, I, but I couldn't raise rage because they were working class. It was just amazing. You know, I'm so Marxist long before I was anything else. I come from a communist state. So listen, there are stories to tell about white discrimination and so on. I could also tell stories about the United States. But Indians, you are quite right. Indians, at least in the United States, that's why I used to say about Homi. Homi and Bhikkhu Parekh are OK. The, the Indians are black British. But in the United States, majority of Indians distinguish themselves. They're white identified. They distinguish themselves from the black folks. And so, to an extent, there is uh, animosity on both sides. There are lots that don't, and that number is increasing, thank God. But in, during the civil rights, for example, that whole thing about putting a towel on your head so that it looks like a turban and so on, the, that stuff is it's something that I talk about all the time. Indians taking advantage of affirmative action. I was myself given a chair at Emory because they wanted to avoid giving. They, they, they'd gotten money from Coca-Cola to hire a woman from a, a colored woman to give a chair to. And they wanted to avoid giving a chair to either an African-American or a Hispanic. And I didn't know this. I couldn't stay in that place. I left after two years. And one year, I was away from there anyway. I mean, my African-American feminist uh, co-workers and sisters let me know this. And I was out of there. So the fact of how the Indian, and you know, proudly writing Caucasian on the whatchamacallit, you know, no, I write other. So the thing is, uh, all of this stuff, how the Indian, that's why I said German Orientalism. That's where it comes from. Hegel, history on horseback, the Aryans. So where there is no such race. So to an extent, I'm with you in the analysis of the Indians. But that I might be part of it, the first part of your objection also makes me think about it twice, and I will do so. Thank you. Okay, um, we had a, a question over here. I have a, um, a question that I suppose is more ethnographically oriented, but I feel it's fair to ask it since you've referred a lot to the schools and the villages where you've worked. And also, um, you suggested that many of your ideas about this double bind between hope and expectation come from your work in the villages. And I wondered if you could say a bit about how this double bind is, is expressed or articulated, or through what idioms is it expressed in the villages where you work? Um, <clears throat> hope and expectation. It's very simple, really, because the work that I do is, you know, elementary school, right? Elementary school. And for people, uh, as I said, my sister, elder sister died in 19, uh, uh, 2004. Uh, she had uh, Alzheimer's, galloping Alzheimer's. And one of the things that hap had happened to her was she had forgotten to eat, okay, you know, chew, swallow, etc. And so she choked to death. And when I see these, these people, I really honestly, that's why I used the expression, historically, not a disease, history, forgotten 
to think. I mean, all the all problem-solving capacities have been taken away from them. The only thing that comes is cunning of the worst sort. And I'm not, you know, when I talked in this way, it's somebody at Arizona State University, thank God, Nasira Genif, who works, who's an Algerian uh, feminist who works in Paris, someone told her this, and so she told me and said, Professor Spivak, correct this for them. Because they thought I was saying that poor Indians were not smart enough to help themselves. That is not at all what I'm saying. The, the children who uh, come into the, into the, into the schools, uh, I mean, they begin, their, their uh, cognitive dissonance is created by the uh, society, you know, well, when they are beginning to be used by people, four or five, okay? But you do see them. I get them very, very young. So therefore, in this kind of situation, what I'm doing is not like talking theory, etc. I am teaching the teachers how to teach the national curriculum is in such a way that democratic instincts and their democracy, I have to think it can exist. That is to say, a double bind between no competition and the class struggle, because the class struggle is competitive. On the other hand, democracy is not. How do you do it to produce reflexes in children, on the other hand, in such a way that completely, when I say unintelligent, I'm not being politically, incor politically incorrect. I mean unintelligent because intelligence has been taken away. I did not realize this until I went there. So in a situation like that, I'm not really doing anything at all complicated. And the situation, and very, very hard, because I have to imagine that they do not resemble me. That's the problem with most do-gooding. You know, they, people think that to be ethical means that the, 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 the instrumentalized intellectual and the subaltern are the same. No, to be equal does not mean to be the same. This is a problem also, of course, with gender stuff. But that, uh, there we understand it more easily. So there I would say the expe my expectations are nothing. Because these are people who, as I go on making mistakes, because when I began, I was doing like, uh, you know, like uh, freedom of uh, free thinking, uh, writing for yourself, writing letters, being nice, etc. I was just completely wrong, completely wrong. And, you know, people come in and they uh, do it that way. I mean, the people I try to recruit, and I don't say anything to them except to say, think about uh, how you might be, you, you, how things might not be working exactly right, because the goal is to produce a philosophy of education that they will be able to accept on their terms rather than we feel good having, ha having developed it on our terms. It's a hard one. Anyway, so in, I expect nothing, because what I have found, I mean, the double bind has been coming more and more as the years have gone by. What uh, one finds is, for example, you know, analytic capacity. And this is a typical example, not just one. I say something like this, okay? We are teaching, um, the, first the alphabet, our alphabet is a little bit different, right? First you get the sounds, and then you get the diacritical marks, the vocalic marks, right? So when you teach the vocalic marks, I'm saying to someone, let's say, okay, you have ka, and you add a, you get ka. You have ma, and you add add R and you get ma. 
you have paw and you add a and you get pa. And you have jaw and you add a and you get ja. Now, let's have ga and add a. What will we get? And they're not afraid of me. They, they, you know, I mean, they know me well. I mean, it's no answer. It, it, this is analytical skill at its, at its, at its lowest level. It's just completely impossible to uh, expect uh, to educate. Hmm? Educate in that sense, you know. I mean, it's because everything has been ordered. Everything, do this. So all the teachers in the so-called primary schools telling them, and then they are memorizing. This is, I mean, it's an unbelievable thing. So I expect nothing. But on the other hand, I hope that there is sometimes, you know, there is, I mean, I've published something on this, so you will know, although I was wrong there in, in ways that I will not explain now, because who knows if anybody has read this essay. But um, sometimes by looking into people's, into little children's eyes, I will say, this is ridiculous, this is hope. You know, you can't test it. I will say, I've been teaching full-time for 45 years. I'm like a jeweler. I can tell that this kid is as smart as I am. So maybe that's the hope. And so it's, uh, and there is also hope that one will find people who will understand what it is that I'm about, this kind of Du Boisian, thing that he wrote right after, about the Negro, as he said, right after emancipation. The Negro needs food and shelter, but he also needs, for him, he also needs now to learn to communicate with the stars. Or what Gramsci wrote, he said, uh, you know, the, the, the subaltern being helped is not just moving from unskilled to skilled labor, but a democracy imagines that the subaltern is made a quote-unquote citizen so that he can supposedly quote-unquote govern. That's a democracy. See, so one could relate. I mean, of course, it's an impossible hope, and Gramsci knew it better than anyone else. He was a communist. But on the other hand, so the, that, that's the double bind. It's very real because, and sometimes the expectation of nothing um, wins, and then you have forgotten the skill of uh, making unsure decisions as you are rocking in the double bind, shuttling in the double bind. I remember very well, this is just one last thing I will say, anecdote. I remember very well in those tribal areas, which about which I was wrong, but I can't explain how now. One night I couldn't do, do it anymore, because when you see that this kind of stuff is happening all the time as you're trying, you sh show, they, the teachers do not know how to use books. They don't uh, know that they should look at the books or anything. They don't know how to use the books. And you can see that the, uh, that the Board of Education in Calcutta are very benevolently writing textbook after textbook, laying it out for poor, uneducated uh, rural folks when they think that the poor, uneducated rural folks are exactly like their poor, uneducated domestic servants in the urban um, context, okay? So I just, I couldn't go on anymore. And so uh, this little place where I'm going into a, a, a room to sleep and my um, assistant whom I train so that he can co co continue the work. I don't have a, 
a female assistant yet uh, for reasons that can be discussed. I have many female teachers who will do the work of supervising when I'm not there because I don't want to be there all the time since it's something that they do on their own. So he goes into the schoolroom where he's sleeping with some other tribals and the, our kind of unwritten rule which we never ever uh, articulated was that once you know, I went into that room and he went into the schoolroom, we didn't speak again until morning. But uh, before we went in, I had said to him, I said, Ashish, I don't think I can go on anymore. One cannot fight with such blunt weapons. And, you know, I went in. And that day, he broke his rule. He came in wearing his gamta. He came into my room and he says, Sister, if anyone can, you can. So the thing is, yes, you can. It wasn't an Obama who was saying it. This guy, I mean, you know, I, I would often say to Ashish, Ashish, if I had a video camera, in terms of what you and I do, walking across rivers on foot, etc., with shoes, etc., my reputation will be made, and we would laugh together. But at any rate, I mean, so this is the this is the the, the double bind between hope and expectation. That's how it shows itself. And so I'm sorry. This again is the best I can do. Sorry, this is so complicated. I've got Sileti dialects, so it's a bit different. No, that, of course, <laughs> my university Bengali, I won't understand that. Uh, uh, um, I've got a complicated sort of dilemma here because uh, I've been working on a campaign to save um, one of East End's last um, remaining sort of street markets, what is a traditional street market. And what's happening um, nowadays is a lot of spaces are being standardised. And so a lot of people are finding it very, maybe the Americanization or someone described as neoliberalism of space. But this kind of um, everything becomes a market hall as well. And so, but what they described as in this market, which is in Upton Park, um, what they described as a space in between the stalls is very important. There's a kind of interaction which happens between the seller or what is probably the last bastions of East End culture, you know, sort of. East End markets where they're allowed to say what they are, swear as much as they like, and you know. Um, so, what, there's a kind of interaction happening in between which we, we find it very difficult to describe. Um, could you, do you have a feeling about that? Do you have a feeling about the seller, the non seller, and also that the people who shop at this market don't have English as their first language? They don't directly communicate in that sense, but there's a kind of understanding of space and feeling there. So I just wondered if you might have a feeling about that. You know, I, I don't know what to say because, uh, because the, this is a, what you are describing to an extent, uh, broadly speaking, because it is uh, going to be, you are trying to save it, it's going to be swallowed up by the uniformity of the world, which is more convenient, more testable, more healthier, you know, all that stuff. I like being unhygienic. And this is, a, I mean, my two white husbands found this to be so intolerable. I won't even describe the ways in which I'm, I mean, it's not that my family is unhygienic, but I have found that from the street culture to be much more comfortable. So I'm not going to give you details. But, <laughs> but, um, but this thing that's going to be, this is, therefore, this can be described as a subaltern space for now. For now, I think I can describe it. I mean, I'm not going to kind of define or anything. Describe. 
the thing with uh, subalternity is that it cannot generalize itself. It cannot generalize itself. So this is why I never write books about those schools. I'm not ready to generalize. And so I cannot really have a, a, an opinion about what you, I can have a feeling about it, but I cannot have an opinion about it because I have to be involved in that text. And I assure you, if I went there to be involved in that text, it would be a joke because the involvement in that text is like learning a life language. Just as if I asked you right away to read L'Education Sentimentale in French, you would not just look at a like French book quickly, French grammar book quickly, and then go to be involved with Flaubert. People don't understand, you do, but many people don't understand that to be in the text of subalternity because it's pre-generalizable. See, this is the history that hurts. So I cannot really say anything. It's, uh, but I can say why I cannot say anything, and that's what I'm saying. And, uh, you know, and that's why, that's why the benevolent kind of patronizing of these projects, although I like that, I mean, how can I not like it? It's better than malevolent, uh, uh, you know, leaving it alone. This is a double bind too, but you cannot do these things with interpreters or, and with interpreters of course is when, you know, and we are talking about a different kind of language, or not being part of that language yourself. It's a kind of textuality as I was saying. I'll give you an example, so you'll have to be satisfied with this, what I just said, okay? And even taking me there will not do anything because one doesn't go there to look in fact, I did not go in Bangladesh when Furida says, Didi, today uh, they're all going to refuse the seeds that are coming with the, with the money that's being given after the floods because they are conscientized by us. Come along. And I said, Furida, you have to forgive me. I haven't been involved in the work. I, as a, uh, as a caste Hindu Indian, am not going to go see them do this. Sorry. I, no, solidarity tourism is not my way. So I stayed home. So two, I'm not saying this is a good thing to do, I'm just trying to, since you asked me the question. So it seems to me that that particular uh, way, the way of preserving the, uh, the uh, a space which will retain its subalternity as a refuge, as it were, something I have deep sympathy with and I have talked about it again theoretically they cannot be generalized but theoretically I've talked about it as changing performativity to performance because once you've saved it you've framed it it's become performance rather than the software you compute with you know what I mean so but I, I, again it's a double bind but that's about what I could it's a wonderful question do you want to ask them the question? Us, the question. I don't know whether you guys have been here. Um, there's, there's an East End market called Queen's Market in Upton Park, which is, um, which is a traditional London street market. And I think 
one of the one of the problems we had recently was somebody was trying to describe the space in between the stalls and how far um, in this redevelopment that everything's been standardized and it's turning into a market in a mall and um, but what is that space of interaction that happens between the seller and the person who's selling and they said what's special about that market particularly is that these I mean there's a there's a kind of hidden culture which is um, the all the immigrants from around the world would go there because it's cheap affordable food but they can't speak English properly but they had this amazing interaction between um, um, barrel boys sort of fruit sellers which are one of the last sort of um, well that's their last sort of bastion of kind of um, um, bastion of kind of expressing their cultural sort of roots I suppose so I mean I was just trying to see what I mean this is open to all of you of course what you might see as that space in between the stall and the stall holder or that standardization do you think I mean I haven't seen it as soon as a market becomes a hall I think it doesn't really quite hold that for me but but how, how would you describe that Anyone been to a market before? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I'm just asking, what is the space between you and me, or what is the space between the speaker and the audience? And that is really the question about the stalls as well. What is the same? So how is it here? You know, can I just speak to that? I have the right to speak and I'm hogging when... You know, that's such a good thing to say. You know, because I was thinking as you turned the question. You know, I'm of course all for saving this place, this uh, hidden culture, all of this stuff. But what I really would like... See, we have all developed into th folks quite different. I mean, you can only speak Siludi, for example, because you speak that as a private language, the language that came into being at the end of the 11th century. You speak it as a private language, only family, etc., etc. right? That's, Ngugi Wationga would be very unhappy about that because these are also public languages, okay? Understood. So I completely understand the subcultures and the hidden uh, places and so on, and the places in between. But what I would like to really hope for, here you go, hope for, yes, hope for, and indeed this relates to other hopes that I have had, is not so much, and I'm with you, I'm not saying no, I'm just saying something in another place, that just as we have all happily developed into some other things so that we can also protect that, how would it be if that principle the principle that something happens, which is why I said there was no subsistence farming, no subsistence hunting, that something happens in between the places of exchange and so on. How, what would happen if that, because that you generalized, you did give that as a principle, that's what differs. How about if that were not just something like a museum of subalternity, but thought through as a real principle in terms of, it, you would need huge systemic changes, much of it in education of the sort that we give. Marx's example about architecture would then become questionable. You know, how about thinking of that, not just in a green way, but as a serious 
principle of what happens in places of exchange, so that it isn't just imitating as one sees all the time. You know, I'm speaking now German Romanticism. Unfortunately, what can one do? That's all one is stuck with. But at least I recognize that that's what I'm doing. Not just imitating the, uh, the, the place, and then, you know, you see somewhere exactly these marketplaces where people try to be like really hang out and be, be real. But you wouldn't even recognize that the principle has traveled. And I do think that there are radical architectural folk um, here and there who question the demands of capitalist uniformity and try to think these things. So I think at once the short term preserve this. Long term, think of how these can become, in fact, educative rather than uh, being preserved uh, right below, being preserved from above. You know what I mean? Uh, with your, um, I never learned your name. We sat together, but I was introduced as Mark's mother, so I need to, I need to know your name. What is your name? Oh, Helta. 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 Okay. Well, from Hertha's uh, uh, remark, I began to realize that uh, this is really what, because she generalized it into a space between me and you. And so I would like to ask a question, which is, if someone would like to articulate a hope, you know, like I said, if you really want to know my hope, and I said, you know, that borderless world and uh, the electorate, if someone would like to articulate a, a serious political hope, or if you want to be funny and make fun of me, that's fine too. But if you would like, if I could hear a, a few, then I would know to whom I was speaking. Just questions, you know, it's like taking an exam, isn't it? So would, can I? Yes, there we go. Hi. Um, I, I, I'm not going to express a hope, I'm afraid. Um, but maybe along that train of thought, I'd like to come back to the idea of um, Obama being a closet socialist. I'd like to draw you on that a little bit. And I'm wondering if it's structured in a way in, as a double bind, in the way that you've described throughout the evening. And I'm wondering if, if um, Obama being a closet socialist is one half of the double bind, then what the other might be. Well, I, you know, I don't know him personally. Um, some of my colleagues happened to be at that uh, conference that Stanley Fish did some years ago in Illinois, and he was one of the public intellectuals invited. That was a good way of getting to know him. My colleague Joe Stiglitz knows him personally, but then he's a Nobel Prize winning economist who worked for the World Bank. I don't have any such credentials. So, you know, I don't know him. But it does seem to me that uh, it's easy in a law school to be a left-leaning, especially a especially an Ivy League law school. Well, Chicago is not exactly Ivy League, but could be just as well. You know, I mean, it's one of those high up there. Although it's slightly harder in Chicago because of the presence of the of modern thought and so on. Um, is, is that what it's called? Milton Friedman's uh, committee? Committee of Social Thought. Uh, because of the uh, presence of the Committee on Social Thought, it's a bit harder in, in Chicago, but nonetheless, you can be a brilliant left-leaning law professor working also in the government with self-selected students, as it were. 
So therefore, from the way he speaks, you know, and uh, to use revenue for taxation to, it's really welfare state socialism. I'm not saying he is a scientific socialist of the Marxian kind. It's something that has, that, uh, you know, has happened. But the thing is that he himself gives proof, especially in that, in that uh, stimulus package, which has now become completely pared down. He gives proof that he believed not only in job security, which is a big thing, but also in epistemic change in the general culture so that once one has job security, you know what Paulo Freire said, the oppressed want to become sub-oppressors unless there is a pedagogy of the oppressed. So that's what he was really trying for in all of the spending that didn't seem to be creating jobs. And so that's where the closet socialism stuff comes in. Now the double bind that he's in is of course to lead a state, you know, a state which has a, sh a shattered state with a history of, of, uh, of uh, abuse of power and a history of self-conscious exceptionalism as the other pole. It, this is a very difficult task so that, you know, it doesn't seem to the general populace that he's undoing America's place. I mean, look how much, even when you are not really a nationalist or anything, I constantly hear from my left-leaning European friends and British friends mockery of the United States as opposed to their own place because of the loss of empire. So to an extent, it seems to me that this is, if you like, that's the double bind. The double bind is his, his, um, uh, his responsibility to have won in a campaign which was clearly compromised by racialized visibility of a sort, which he knew was, he tried to avoid it constantly Tony Morrison, the morning after, when everybody was talking about how wonderful an African-American has been chosen, she was on Charlie Rose, and she said, look, the man is chosen because he was good for the job. It's okay that he was not um, rejected because he's African-American. The point is not that an African-American was chosen. So, you know, to an, to an extent, this is the double bind, you know, to have been chosen, in that, in, and then to have that kind of what I'm calling closet socialism, welfare state socialism, that's not hard. Now, Roosevelt's so-called, everybody thinks of Roosevelt in the, in the United States as a sort of arch socialist, and what we have seen through the Reagan-Bush era, et cetera, is the undoing, the dismantling of the welfare state, right? But Roosevelt was a job creator, and in fact, I will, and this answer, in the name of my uh, student, William Sampson, whose name I quite often bring up um, at many, many Q&As, he was killed by the FBI, and they did not allow video evidence in the trial. Why? Because, I mean, this is really an extremely, uh, extremely troubling story, because, you know, this kind of discussion he took seriously, young man in who was my student in the 60s, took seriously, got a medical degree, then went and joined a union to, uh, to tell them that 
job security was not the only thing because they were playing into the hands of the management, what they should do, how they should see themselves as stronger, et cetera, et cetera. He was one of the Greensboro Five. You can find him on the internet, right? So this is the difference between you know, even thinking welfare state and the use of, I mean, not that one shouldn't create jobs. I mean, it's when employability is the mark of being able to move in society, then of course that's a double bind too, long term, short term. But the idea that that ain't socialism, socialism is something a bit more than keeping, uh, than asking the capitalists for jobs. So this thing is what I think Obama felt that as the head of a yesterday powerful capitalist country, perhaps he could take a try. But there's a great difference between the classroom and the White House, and that's the compromise that we are watching. So that's the double bind we are watching between the creation of collectivities in the classroom and managing a state that thinks like other states that the leader of a democracy is a modern prince. That's what it is. So what a wonderful question this is. Thank you, thank you. Again. Could we have the microphone down the front, please? And uh, please feel free to come up with an example of your hopes for if you want. a political future as yet unrealized. Whatever, you know, if you want. If Write not, it on a that's piece cool of paper, too. leave it by the door. Shout it out. Well, I was thinking of the desire to say, do I would hope for socialism and thinking why that was difficult. And so I suppose the question is about to what degree you think hope needs to determine object? And I think this in two ways. I mean, one is in relation to Barack Obama, which is obviously the, the, the criticism of Obama right through the campaign on both the right and the left was that there's no substance to the hope, there's no real object. Yes, it's just yes, a yes. vague, abstract kind of, we can do, well, do what? And the second aspect I'm thinking of, I suppose, is to do more specifically with the left. And, and one of the most common analyses of what's happened to the left over the last kind of 20 years or so would be that it's lost that object. And so mm -hmm. a vision of a kind of collective hope for X, X being socialism or communism or, or whatever else, has become increasingly difficult for the left. And, and I'm, I suppose I'm just wondering where you situate yourself in, in relation to that. Um, yes, the, a, a very important question. It seems to me that, now I want to, yes, wait, lost object. I had really, I had actually written it out somewhere about why the last object, I mean, you know, the, 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 I can't find it. If I can find it here, then it's okay. Otherwise, I can't give you that answer because, you know, it comes, you, comes in a flash to you when you're writing and I don't seem to, have, seem to be able to find it. But this, uh, let's forget the last object. Let's, um, yes, ha, okay. I think, and then I'll go on to your stuff about socialism having a goal. I think physical beauty does indeed feed into and is derived from celebrity taste desire. These folks were American idols, capital A, capital I, you know the, uh, the This entire set is the American way of stereotyping democracy today. It is almost as if those simple dreams that Freud described, that the dreamer dreams in order to be able to interpret them, 
the, the wish fulfillment at its simplest and most rarefied, it seems like that's at work here. It is to be compared to the complexity of what Stathis Gurguris describes in his excellent book, Dream Nation, in terms of how Greece was dreamed as Hellenic Greece and the origin of Europe after the fall of the Ottomans. That's a much more complex thing than, thing than what we are looking at here. One of his chief arguments is that there is no nation and therefore we must dream it, the lost object argument. And what better way of empiricizing the lostness of the object than through physical beauty? So this is the physical beauty answer that will be in the visual culture thing. But to come back to your more serious question, yes. See, yes, we also learned to hope for international socialism by peaceful means. That's what the World Bank was supposed to be, yeah? As opposed to violent means, the Communist Party and so on. But the fact was, and this, I'm not alone in saying this, which is why the work that I now do, not, I not, I'm not alone here. I always cite Theodore Shanin, there are many others. It, because of vanguardism, it was not possible, it is, it is not possible to engage the subaltern, the people, the masses, you know, and so therefore, what happens is that when the seduction of capitalism comes, the place crumbles. So therefore, it's not enough to hope for this. And also, I mean, it falls, the social, socialism falls between the space, uh, the word social in Marx, the quantified word, you know, Fergusellschaftet, et cetera, the quantified word, the abstract average, which is owned by the worker and then uh, creates, everything is socialized in the colloquial sense. And Marx's own humanist understanding of the quote, social unquote, the huge gap between the two. And they're the same word, so they're confused. And of course, so therefore, there is, I used to think that there's an ethics-shaped gap, no. Of course, there is a gender-race-shaped gap, more gender-shaped gap, one of the problems with the dream of international socialism. But the real problem is the epistemological undertaking to change the subaltern into the circuit of the abstract circuits of socialism. Socialism is abstract. You cannot have an abstract thing as a goal for human beings. So, in fact, Socialism should be in the place of that which can be only too easily ascertained, you know, changing state formations. And revolution was, in fact, when socialism, when a place was not ready for socialism. In Marx's book, Victorian England was ready because of nascent capitalism. The line was clear. Revolution, the reason why he doesn't have any theory of revolution is because it was an exception. General strike was what these people thought about Rosa. Luxembourg and company, taking it from people who are not really communists, Sorel and company. So to that extent, the idea of socialism, socialism's object is an impoverished idea. It's an existentially impoverished idea. So the, the loss of that object is not surprising. But it, when we are talking about the goal within, um, within statecraft, that there's no goal there. There is no goal there. The, in fact, it's all like what um, Kant describes as the 
moral laziness of mere reason. That is to say, everything is in a kind of dovetailed situation, and you are pushing at this to pull at that. You're, you're pulling at this to push at that. That's how the world works, not according to those abstract ideas. But the, therefore, our work is supplementing vanguardism. You cannot avoid a vanguard. Even if you say we want a popular vanguard or we don't want vanguards, by the law of work you will find, if you have ever been engaged in any kind of work, you will find that there is a cluster of people who do all the work because they do all the work. That's called a vanguard. Okay? You can call it a steering committee, but that ain't a steering committee. It's a vanguard. So therefore, in fact, since the system is for all people, you need to work for those who are not the best workers, and that's epistemological work. So that on a normal day, they will want something that you know, uh, is different from uh, wanting to be another one of the oppressed. So that the work is, I'm so glad you came back, you know, because I thought you were leaving in anger because I said, said socialism should lose its object. I lost another one. But, uh, but so that's what I would say. That's the real object now, endless, because on the one side is the cross-hatching of globalized geopolitics, and, on the, and the states become managerial states. Much worse than neoliberalism is the managerial state undone by the World Social Forum, all, as much as it is undone by neoliberalism. And so there's the cross-hatched geopolitical space of the world on one side, and on the other side, this uh, uh, need to supplement vanguardism. And as teachers, many of us are teachers in this room. It's mostly academic folks, academic activists. I'm, I'm a full-time activist, but it's educational activism. There's a little bit of this and that, which I'm not going to talk about. But nonetheless, it seems to me that that would be the object. If you want an object, that's the phrase. Supplementing, persistent supplementing vanguardism, because it will never end. That's what I think the task is. And you actually took me to my final question, which was to ask you about the work of the academic or of the intellectual or the public intellectual and what hopes you have for that role. Now, you will be understand that I, predictably, uh, am very doubtful about the, the role of the intellectual, okay? But that doesn't mean anything. Or, it, or it means, yes, it may be, uh, it may be is my word. Um, it means that, uh, you know, it, be tested. It may be, uh, you know, it's, it's okay, but that's my mode of saying it's okay, as it were. So I'm doubtful about it. I'm not doubtful about some things, but they're not interesting to me. The, I'm not, well, I won't go into what I'm not doubtful about. But uh, so the, uh, in this sense, I would say that, again, I very much like Gramsci. I like Gramsci, I like Melanie Klein. And of course, I uh, like Marx, that's, I mean, that brilliant intellect ahead like a planet. But the thing is that in terms of Gramsci, that's, uh, in terms of Gramsci, uh, the, the idea of this um, instrumentalizing the intellectual, you see, what was wonderful about Gramsci was that he was from a small European state. 
And mostly when I hear people speaking from small European states, they don't have a clue about the world. But what Gramsci said travels for the whole world. So what he was saying, that you instrumental, and even in jail, instrumentalize the intellectual. And he has a phrase very poorly translated. I was talking about this at Goldsmiths last time I, I spoke for John. Very poorly, almost totally mangled where he says that the intellectual is in a master-disciple relationship with the historical situation. And it is the historical situation that is the master. It is the intellectual who is the disciple. What was I describing when I was describing to my friends ethnographic as self-styled ethnographic? I didn't think it was all that ethnographic. Fine question. The, uh, the, the question about you know, the expectation and hope. I was describing what Gramsci, sitting in his jail cell with no experience at all, had talked about. That it's the, the intellectual, the instrumentalized intellectual. Mind you, I did not make that connection until I started teaching Gramsci again. I said, my god, this is what I've been doing. So it wasn't like I went in following Gramsci with my Gramsci in my hand, no. But you can't in a situation like that. But at any rate, when Gramsci was suggesting that uh, the intellectual is instrumentalized and a disciple of the historical situation because the, the intellectual cannot be a disciple of the subaltern. Then the subaltern wouldn't be a subaltern. That's pathetic, sentimental nonsense. It's a kind of Christian idea that all through uh, millennia of suffering, the subaltern has somehow retained the power to speak. That's kind of, that's like, uh, that's truly abdicating from one's own responsibility to think that everything remains okay, you know. All you have to do is just give them a mic and anything they say is, and they will even say they want capitalism, you know, the little child wire magazine, you go and see. But at any rate, so you instrumentalize the intellectual for, the, uh, for uh, producing the, the subaltern intellectual who would be Gramsci also realized that the proletarians were uh, very prejudiced against the subalterns. This is an absolutely, you know, for when, for example, $125 million is allowed to our uh, Mailman School of Public Medicine, you know, this is your question about, you know, helping public, et cetera, public intellectual, public medicine, it's given translation costs. They have no idea. So my idea is that the intellectual should really, in a sense, become not just an intellectual. This, that's really, that's a public intellectual, not just someone who happens to talk on topics that are not his uh, topic of specialization and give speeches on television. I don't call that a public intellectual. I think that's opposing. But at any rate, to come back to this thing about, um, about uh, translation costs, See, they had no idea, an idea that Gramsci had sitting in his jail cell with no experience, that the relationship between the people who know the hegemonic languages that far down, you know, and this is people from the Mailman School are going for HIV AIDS to Africa, right? That far down, the ones who know the hegemonic languages and can interpret, they have a relationship of utter contempt and prejudice with the ones who are absolutely down, unfortunately. I mean, this is obviously, there are exceptions to every rule. And I always tell a story, luckily it has only happened to me once, but it has the critique of exemplarity, the aporia of exemplarity. I hope this is not true all along, but if it has happened once, it's what the philosophers would call a counterexample. 1991, Bangladesh cyclone. I'm uh, going there 
to in a trawler. You probably have heard this, John, also. The, uh, in a trawler with a barefoot uh, school teacher, the two of us women, uh, the EU had given lots of lentils and rice, so the whole trawler is packed with lentils and rice and the boatmen, okay? So the, uh, in that area, I mean, the, all the electricity is gone, of course, a huge cyclone, and in that area, you know, in that tidal uh, uh, waves, the, uh, the tide is such that the trawler couldn't dock, okay? So all night, uh, there were these three boatmen and we two women, and the question is, the stories that I could tell would be very nice, but only personal. But, um, but then, finally, uh, when the tide uh, um, kind of, uh, what, what do tides do? They turn, yeah. When, see, I'm forgetting, I'm not a native speaker, so sometimes I forget these uh, English articulations. When the tide was turning, or turned completely, uh, the, we docked. And you know, there, I mean, you were smelling corpses still, very close to the cyclone. Lots of people had died. So the smell and the mud is like ice. It's a very special mud. And I hope you will understand this word. The Bangladeshi's name for it is Prem Kada, because it doesn't let you go. It's love mud. It's like love. You know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't let you go. So, they, and it's just like ice. It's, okay. So droves of women running, because they have heard that a woman is coming who speaks Bengali, okay? And they are saying, uh, we don't want to be, because these are human beings. They may be very poor, but that doesn't mean they're not human. They're saying, we don't want to live. We don't want to live. They're treating us like animals. They wanted to speak to me and say this. Who were they? Doctors without borders. You know why? Because the interpreters were treating the women in that way. It wasn't the Doctors Without Borders. They're wonderful people. They're people that we should admire. But unfortunately, since they go all over the world, they always have to do this through interpreters. And who is going to tell them that this is happening? And it doesn't really matter because they give, this is not primary health care. This is just pro solving a problem so the bodies are saved. But these are human beings. And so th this is the subaltern. And, I d and the subaltern wants to speak. That's, that's my point. They found someone. But I couldn't go and tell Doctors Without Borders at that point, saying, don't trust the interpreters. That remained completely, completely uh, silent, that speech, you know, which they did make. So therefore, I would say that that particular notion of the public intellectual, it's very hard to be a public intellectual. It looks like one has become a public intellectual because opportunities for being a bad public intellectual is offered so easily. It's like my mother tongue. It's very easy to learn it badly. I know because both my white husbands learned to read, write, and speak it badly. It's an easy language. But to learn it well is something else again. And so, to be a public intellectual, there are millions of ways these days of being a public intellectual. But to really work at being, to instrumentalize oneself, you know, like you're holding the uniform and the gun, that's to, you won't, but the, the irony of that remark, you know, that's to instrumentalize yourself. And then you are in a space where you are not an intellectual, is protected by being an intellectual. You know what I'm saying? So that it's a, a wonderful last question. And I believe I have overstayed my welcome. Uh, so 
and I have sung for my supper, if you want cliches. So <laughs> thank you so very much for your questions and your input. <laughs>